If you know and you're confident in what you do and you put out quality work, getting bigger is not hard. Mm. It's being able to pay the bills and controlling everything that happens with that. And like I said, you can't do that alone. Focus on your team first. Elevate your team. Educate your team. Make sure that they got your back. No matter what happens at any level, they can step in. It's important, realistically, if you got that formula and you plug it in properly and put in the work. I searched all over the world, struggling to find it. Then I met my boy, David E. Simons. Yeah. I searched all over the world, struggling to find it. Then I met my boy, David E. Simons. Yeah. Discover my gift, yeah, yeah. Discover my gift, yeah, yeah. But David E. Simons. episode of How to Discover My Gift with yours truly, David D. Simons. I am happy and excited to have a fellow namesake who's also a David, David Lopez, on the show. Let me tell you about this brother, David Lopez. David Lopez is the founder of DL Metal Design and has been working in the steel industry since 1997. David started his steel career with his brother, a master welder, hired him during his college breaks, Oh, you know we're going to talk about that. He continued to learn and in just a few short years became a project manager at the age of 21 with projects exceeding $2 million in total value. By the, team, by the time that David was in his early 30s, he had helped shape the team up from an up-and-coming ornamental steel player in the New York market and was promoted to chief operating officer. David has held executive positions for multiple companies and has managed teams for combined work exceeding $400 million in revenue. Most importantly are the, are the many mentors and teachers David has learned from in the industry throughout his career. This knowledge has shaped him into a strong leader and partner for his clients. David enjoys coaching soccer and basketball and is the vice president of the Southern Lehigh Youth Basketball Association. When he's not in the office or coaching, David enjoys hiking, biking, and traveling with his children, Kaylee and David James, and his wife, Barbara. David holds a BS in business management from Northeastern University. Welcome to the show, Dave. Thank you. Thanks, Dave. Wonderful. You're making wonderful. my head kind of big. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, am, I am so excited for this interview for so many reasons um, because uh, I, as the listeners will know, because I, I have the pleasure of knowing you behind the scenes, the man behind the camera as well, and there's so many layers to you um, as a businessman, as a as a father, as a husband, as a uh, a leader, and and some of the even the, the new things you're embarking embarking upon and, and doing. So, Dave, I, I want to I want I want you to give me the the journey. We kind of talked through it a little bit in your bio, but give me the journey from from childhood to as best as you can in the summary from childhood to today of who you became, how you became who you are. Um, I mean, if you go all the way back to childhood, I'd say my parents were obviously the biggest influence, right? Um, you know, my parents both moved here from Puerto Rico, one when they were 17, uh, my mother when she was seven, um, you know, and realistically, both of them were extremely hard workers. I think both of them also had that, you know, uh, entrepreneurial spirit that kind of passed on to me, even as a young person, whether it was uh, early on trying to sell the most chocolates from football or whatever it became now. But <clears throat> that's really where it all started. Um, but I've always had a drive to be a business owner. You know, I took every job I had as I was an owner of that company. I think that helped me excel and become successful within the companies I worked with um, and then eventually became something that worked for me and the successes in the businesses I started. So, I mean, back when I was 13, you know, I started my first job at a flower farm. Um, you know, I was on my knees and out picking flower roots when I was 13 years old. Um, quickly found that that's not what I want to do for the rest of my life. <laughs> uh, and then moved on into just other jobs. So I worked as a waiter, passenger service, um, worked in clothing stores, uh, always had multiple jobs, was always looking to try to 
you know, build that wealth, if you could say on, you know, so I've, I've always worked and been a hard worker. I think that's one of the key things it's going to take for any business owner is you have to have that drive, right? Um, it's not just going to be handed to you. So at a young age, I've always knew I wanted to own my own business. Uh, me and my parents went into adventure at a pretty young age. Uh, I was probably, I'd say at that point in my early 20s, um, was my first business, real business. Uh, we invested together into a Quiznos. So I actually owned a Quiznos restaurant in Philadelphia. <clears throat> yep, right around, right around 4th and Market. Um, the Jewish Museum is there now, but on the backside, we owned the Quiznos there originally. Um, I was supposed to be the one running it, but as I was getting close to leaving my job, the owner of the company that I worked for actually talked me into staying. He offered me a pretty sizable package that, you know, was hard to walk away from. Um, sizable increase in pay, uh, actually a small portion of ownership. So when that happened, I thrust my wife into the run the Quiznos uh, position. <laughs> and she's, you know, a little different than I am. So that was my first hard lesson that if you're going to start a business, you can't be an absentee owner. You know, everything behind that business was focused on me turning it into a, a catering, you know, momentum and not just having the sandwich shop, but turning it into more of a, you know, larger business beyond just selling sandwiches to people walking through the door. Um, but I was kind of still working, decided to stay with my job. Uh, at the end of the day, lack of a real cornerstone of knowledge in getting into that business um, you know, I had worked at restaurants before, but not as a general manager, not as, you know, what I didn't know the back end of those businesses. I knew I could, people would like me. Um, but then eventually it wasn't even me who was there. So, you know, that was a very expensive lesson, a six figure lesson, how not to start a business. <laughs> so, you know, that kind of shaped me into every other venture I did moving forward. And I made a decision at that point, if I'm not in it a hundred percent, if I don't have the bandwidth to be in 100%, if I can't leverage others' experience but still be a controlling factor in that business, I wasn't going to start it. And since that expensive lesson, it's just gotten better and better since then. Wow. Dang, that's remarkable. That's, I mean, what a remarkable journey. Like, I, I knew about certain pieces, but the, the beginning and the genesis of, like, your parents and how the influence of your parents on your work ethic and your your um entrepreneurial drive and 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 what cool parents to have that said hey let's go into a venture together and in, into your 20s so you must have modeled something for them to see you know what we believe in you to partner and invest into what was that like how that that i know I mean, my mom at 20 invested <laughs> my business yeah yeah I, I think they had that same spirit i did in starting a business right so um, you know, let's go back to my parents. I mean, you know, my mother had to drop out in eighth grade to help take care of, of family stuff. Um, you know, she was never given an opportunity at a young age to kind of, you know, so they really made sure that we had opportunities they didn't. Um, I excelled at school. I had very good grades. Um, I showed leadership at a young age with the different things I joined. You know, I see my mom dropped out in eighth grade, but now she's, you know, an executive vice president for a very large brokerage firm. You know, she took care of four kids. First one, when she was 15, worked herself into an executive position over that time with an eighth grade education. So, you know, that's the kind of push that I had when I was younger that kind of, you know, it, your children get that same push when they see it happening every day. You know, my dad was up at four and he didn't get home till seven, you know, we were just from a very hardworking family. Right. So, so that transitioned into them seeing, I think they saw something in me, right? <clears throat> okay. He can sell things. He's good at that. <laughs> um, so, you know, they had faith in me. Uh, and, you know, even though that did hurt them, I'm it's happy to say that, you know, later in life, you know, I would say I've made that back for them. Plus, and, you know, I paid my debt. I paid that debt, you know, out of my own pocket. It took me years to do it, but I paid for it. Um, so... Wow, what a wonderful son, man! That's that that's that's excellent. So so Dave, um, when you think about it, I mean, you, you you've got all this ability, talent, and skill, and 
when you when you overall overall analyze it, what's your most dominant gift? I think my dominant gift is really working with people. In other words, you know, you can be really good at a specific trade, um, but if you don't know how to connect with people and listen as well as lead and mentor. Um, it's really hard to build that team or that culture or anything for a business. I think that was one of the keys of, of my success is that I can go into any situation, assess, connect with people at multiple levels, um, and really kind of bring that together. I think that's, you know, probably my strongest suit is my ability to build those relationships inside and outside of my company. Wow. That, that's excellent. So, when would you say you noticed this about yourself? Did you notice this early on? Did you notice this when you were you were working on your mentor? Like when when did this revelation appear? I'd say that you know I've worked for a bunch of different types of people, um, and a bunch of different type of people shaped me. But my ability to really be you know for argument's sake likable, um, I think was always kind of me. I'm an outgoing person. I you know tended to have no issue and. It, you know, it's funny because certain people are like, oh, you can talk to anybody. You can say anything. I was scared to do that the first time I did it. So it's not something that anybody feels comfortable doing. But I've gotten to a point now where I think I've mastered that. Right. I can get into an uncomfortable situation or and I say uncomfortable doesn't mean a bad situation. It just means maybe breaking the ice with somebody you've never met before. Um, right. So so kind of getting past that took me time. But I've always been a person that could talk to someone. Uh, have a conversation with a stranger, um, you know, even in situations where, you know, people may not have, may have stereotyped you by what you look like and then seeing the difference in their face once they actually talk to you and get to know you, you know, I don't have a problem breaking that. Ice. So I think from a young age, I've never been afraid to speak to people and kind of like meet new friends and stuff like that. Um, I saw that it became a really big benefit. I'd say when I, was really in that first company that I became uh, chief operating officer. And I embarked on kind of a learning stage of really learning how to change a company because the culture there was, I thought it was pretty, it was not good for argument's sake. Um, it was very cliquish. Um, it was based off of who you knew, how long you worked in a day, not what you produced or the quality of your work. Uh, I like to say that I learned a lot at that location, but I'm happy that I didn't take away the culture or the personality of what they built that company to show. And then I was given an opportunity to kind of change that. And I'm like, wow, this has become a pretty strong thing to just, you know, that thing of who's on the bus, not necessarily where the bus is going first, makes a big difference. And I think that's really when it clicked in my late twenties, early thirties that you know, this is going to be a huge advantage for me moving forward. Wow. And and so tell us about that turnaround, right? Because one of the hardest things to do is to change people or, or cause change or in people to make a culture shift. That's, that is a very difficult thing to do. Can you, can you take us inside of that experience and how, how that was, how that happened? What'd you do? Yeah. I mean, I think, well, the first thing is, Changing an existing culture is definitely much harder than creating a new culture. Mm. So trying to affect change at that company was much more difficult than creating it from scratch at the companies I have started. Um, in the company where I was trying to change a culture, the hardest thing is getting people who've been living in that culture for 25 years to say, hey, this isn't working anymore. Um, and talking to people who've been in that culture for 25 years and saying you don't fit in this picture any longer, right? Um, because it's very clear to me that once you pick a specific culture to follow, those cogs that don't fit create much broader issues um, if left alone and not dealt with. So, you know, back to that uncomfortable thing, right? Like <clears throat> as a leader, it's, you know, it's understanding what works and what doesn't. But being, you know, at least understanding that it's not like, hey, I don't like you. You have to leave. But saying, you know, this clearly this doesn't work for us the way it's working. So let's move on to this. Right. So 
the way that change started, I think, was pretty much I decided, okay, we've got to kind of break these layers down, um, separate these little clicks and you know side groups, and start bringing people together. So the first thing I did actually was I forced the ownership, which you know, and executives, which was me. I said, you know what? I think there's a lot that these employees think about us that we don't know. So let's give them an absolutely, you know, private way to say what their thoughts are. And so we took 20 managers and director level people on a retreat. And myself, the CEO of the company and the uh, executive VP, uh, which were both family members, and this company had been around for, you know, a very long time. Uh, and we went to a, a retreat and we gave everybody the ability to answer these questions with, you know, no name attached to it. Just say what you want to say. Um, and then seeing what people really think about you, knowing that they're not, we're not going to know who said it <laughs> was very interesting. And it exposed that that company, you know, everybody was afraid of their job. So they, they stayed very, they feared for their job almost on a daily basis because of the culture that was created there, you know? of who has to like you to make sure that you're moving up or you're staying confident that you're going to have a job. Um, and that was, I think the real breakthrough of, okay, something's got to change here. Um, you know, because if people fear their job and there's other opportunities in the market, they're going to leave. So now you're going to be paying over market values because you're going to be, you got to keep them somehow. Right. And if it's not because they're happy coming to work, it's going to be because you're paying them, you know, a lot of money. Um, so that was a wake up call where, you know, they were afraid to say things or afraid to interact with us sometimes because they were afraid of what would happen if the wrong thing came out. And it was a good thing for me to be able to say, see, this is the problem. Let's fix this because we can become such a better company and such a larger company if we fix this first. So that's where the change started. That's amazing, Dave. Like, I, I love it. I mean, because... It's it's dissecting like you didn't say, hey, I see all these problems. You said, hey, let's let let's let the people we serve tell us really what's going on. And and, and they got to see it and say it in, in, a, in a way that was freeing. What what transpired? I'm so curious what transpired in the executive team and in their thoughts when they heard these comments and feedback. And and what 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 was the next step? What happened? So, I mean, after we saw that, um, you know, mind you, we're, we're in, you know, a closed situation with them for three days in Boston. So, you know, you can't read it and then go hide in the corner and then, you know, hope it goes away. So we had to meet it head on. So after that, you know, we did some team building, different things that weekend. But one of the things was us speaking at the end as executives. And then it's still hard, right? Because they already fear for their, you know, so now... You know what they're thinking, or a majority of them are thinking, but how do you get the people that think that to actually tell you it was them that think that, right? So so you can try to figure out what their motivation is and what you can fix. And so from that point on, we tried to really become more open with all the employees. So we had an overall meeting, you know, saying, hey, listen, you know, this is the feedback we got. Um, and then we, we actually went broader because after we got that from that kind of like group of 20, we then opened it up to start talking to people at you know, just the, the mechanic level and other levels in the company. Um, and then it's just a matter of getting them together on a regular basis at the company to discuss like, hey, listen, if you have an issue here, you can go here, right? Like if you have an issue with your immediate supervisor, feel free to come talk to us. It's not going to be a backlash. I'd say for about two to three years, we worked on that culture. We started building a very good team. Um, turnover slowed a lot. I mean, that was one of the other major issues we had that I wanted to do this for is because we were seeing major turnover. Um, so turnover slowed down. People, we were building this awesome team. Um, I wasn't the CEO of that company. And at some point that didn't work out and they went back to an old culture. Um, not by my decision or I think a lot of people's decision, but by you know a decision at the top that just decided they wanted to go back to the way things were. And that's when I said, okay, this is, you know, not for me. Wow. So it sounds like it was a very toxic culture and, and they didn't want it. They were stuck in their ways. And, but you like, 
I'm just hearing your stories. Like you gain, you got a gift out of that. Like, like you got a, a tremendous gift. Like, wow, I can affect change through principles, policies, leadership, good with people. You're using your gift of being good with people. And so now take us into that transition of, okay, you've done that for this organization now, DL Metal, and you build your own cor- corporate company, like you said, and you get to start with a great culture instead of changing one. So talk about that, that transition. Because Dave, I would love I would love for you to highlight because I don't think people sometimes um, you know, talk about that transition from uh, being an employee to going into entrepreneurship, which is not always easy. Um, yes. So if you could both speak to that transition in the to building that culture with DL Metal and the transition from employee to entrepreneur. So, so after I left that company, I actually took a few months to myself, enjoyed my family, and then, uh, and then I started working for another company. Um, it was a company that wanted to get into the New York market. I had worked in the New York market for a long period of time at that point. Uh, so I went there at the same time I really was thinking about, okay, clearly I, I can't be a steel guy going into a restaurant blind because it didn't work the first time. <laughs> so, you know, it was quick for me to understand that, you know, I had to have a really good understanding or knowledge of what I'm going into if I want to go into so I had a choice at that point, right? Go work for somebody else, collect a paycheck again, uh, or start my own business. Uh, at that time, um, you know, I had young children uh, and I said, okay, I'm going to work, go look for a job. Uh, got a job pretty quick at another company doing steel, but I'm going to start something on the side that I can build on. So that's originally how DL Metal Design started. Uh, I went to this other company. I opened up the New York market for them. Um, again, treated it like it was my own. Uh, you know, I built that business unit um, from essentially zero. And, you know, it wasn't just me, but I opened up the market. I opened up the sales. I opened up the relationships. You know, I was the starting factor there. And, you know, that when I left that company, that went from, you know, I want to say they're probably doing 30 or 40 million in New York. So... <clears throat> Wait, wait, um, what, what, what did they start at when you when you got in? Zero. I mean, I'm the one that started the zero. Unit. Yeah, yeah, it was a business, it was a new new market for them. Wow. Um. So, you know, and you know, the sales end is very important to open up a market, but you know, they did already have the bandwidth on the back end to build stuff, and so you know, I had almost not really almost. I mean, it was I didn't have unlimited funds to start the business unit, but you know, I had everything I needed to go in there and be confident no matter how much I sold, they could take care of it. So I went open New York for them in that process. Again, you know, I'm looking at numbers. I know what the numbers are. I opened the unit. I can see everything. I'm the executive for, for the New York market. And, you know, I'm like, man, I'm, this is the second time I'm kind of building something with a company. Um, so I said, I'm starting something on my own. So DL Metal Design back in 2015, I had another friend you know, my name's Dave Lopez, and I know everybody thinks DL is Dave Lopez. But I had a friend whose last name was DePaulo, and I was Lopez. So we started DL Metal Design as a design engineering firm, DePaulo Lopez. Um, in that period of time, I started to build business there, just drawing and engineering, which is one small aspect of the project cycle we do now. Um, so I worked for that company for a few years, decided, okay, I'm going to um, kind of start my own thing, which I did. I continued to consult for them, but I was on my own, uh, by 2015. Um, and then in that process, I built DL metal design to probably about six detailers. We were doing probably, I think our biggest year was about six to 700,000 revenue, um, all remote. So we were hundred percent remote, um, you know, before the pandemic and everything, I was hundred percent remote. Uh, so that's how we did things. And I had guys working for me in Texas, Puerto Rico. You know, I had built a team that was essentially all around the country. Um, and we were doing some very nice work, some prominent work throughout the country. Uh, and then about 2017, at that point, I had moved away and I was moving back into the area. And the company that I had still consulted for and opened up the New York market um, was looking for somebody to revamp their division. They were having some issues in Pennsylvania. And I was moving back to PA. So I had to make a decision. 
Yeah. Do I invest everything I have into building DL into a turnkey company or do I take this offer? Um, I made it clear that I was not going to close DL, but that I would help them revamp. So I came into that company uh, and I think it was a pretty systemic issue of not just culture, but <clears throat> of not really tracking or managing employees. Um, there was just a lot of issues. So over a two year period, um, I'd say I built that team from four guys into about 12 total people. And I'd say revenue grew at least by two X, potentially three X in that period of time. So again, DL is still kind of a side thing at that point. Yeah. Um, we're doing okay. And I felt like the end result of my work versus what I was making just wasn't matching again. Um, you know, I'm making somebody all these profits. Right. You know, why am I not just doing it? So at a point in 2019, I said, you know, I've helped revamp this, you know, this division, but I'm moving on. And that's when I decided to really invest everything into uh, DL and turning it into, instead of just a design and engineering for, firm, somebody that, a company that was going to do everything. So we're going to get the contract, design it, build it, put it in. Um, so we're doing the full project life cycle now. The transition's not easy, right? Especially when, so at this point, you know, my wife, we decided I wanted her to be home with our children. Um, she was, she is working for me still and has always run the books for DL. So she's essentially our chief, uh, chief financial officer. So she was juggling kids and, you know, essentially being my partner in the companies as we, we grew. Um, but yeah, so it was pretty much just me and her for many years. And then I told her, I said, listen, I know we've kind of built a little nest egg. Uh, I want to put every cent into this. Yeah. And she said, I, I, she goes, you've been saying this for years. And you're not going to be happy until you do it. And what's the worst case scenario? We lose everything and then we go back and get a job. That's what we're doing now, right? So she was, once she gave me that green light, then it was all over at that point. My mindset was focused on nothing but that. Shout out to Barb. Shout out to Barbara. <laughs> what an amazing wife you have. Yeah. That's awesome. I, I want to speak about that dynamic, Dave. I, I don't want you to lose your point of the story, but yeah. how important is it to have a supportive spouse or partner you know, to be able to do what you need to do. Oh, I think it's super important. Yeah. I mean, you can't be, you can't be comfortable and happy at work if you're not comfortable and happy at home. Right. Mm. Um, I think, you know, they kind of go hand in hand. Um, that doesn't mean your wife or your significant other or your partner is, is in the business with you. But, you know, when you get married, right, you're doing stuff together. So I think it's important that those two things kind of come and listen, Barb, my wife is not somebody who takes chances. You know, she's the one that's like, you know, put everything in the bank, don't spend a dollar, you know, and I'm the one that's like, okay, I think we can make two bucks out of that dollar. So let's go. Just right there, you know? um, so over the years, you know, because we've also done a lot of real estate deals and some other stuff throughout the years um, that, she's kind of gotten used to, I guess, like he's going to do this. So <laughs> let me just jump on the wagon. Um, but no, I think it's important because it'd be difficult for me to go home and have that, you know, tug of war with someone uh, and then try to come to the office and focus on what I have to focus on. So I think it's a key, key thing that you're both on in line with what you're doing and understanding the risks. You know, I never, ever, ever sugarcoated anything to her. I made it very clear, like, there's no guarantees. Like I could be doing this and it could be zero in a year. We lose everything that we worked so hard for over the last five, 10 years. Um, but, <clears throat> but she had faith in me, I think too. So that's awesome. Wow. Okay, cool. So yeah, but you were sharing too. So you, you take that nest egg. Yep. And then pour it in and then what happens? So I take that nest egg, we're ready to go. And then the pandemic hits. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm making a really good salary. I'm an executive for a company. I'm, uh, I quit my job in pretty much December, January of, uh, 2019 going into 2020. Mm -hmm. so come February. Um, well, that company had asked for me to stay for a period of time. Uh, so I, I agreed to stay for seven weeks. That they wanted me to stay for, uh, to try to make the transition easy for them. 
uh, in that process, the pandemic hits in February and, you know, it's four weeks into me essentially saying, Hey, I'm see you later. I'm, I'm leaving. Um, and then once that happens, I actually, you know, get an offer to stay because the pandemic's happening. So, you know, I was, I guess, blessed enough that I had just quit, but they were like, don't have to leave. You can stay if you'd like. Um, but at that point, my mind was set. And I said, if it's the pandemic this year, it's going to be something next year. And it's going to be something the year after, like, you know, is there ever a perfect time to start a business? No. Um, so I, I, you know, said, no, thanks. I'm moving forward. And I did. So come April, um, is when we pretty much, so I knew there was two things I definitely wanted for this company. Number one was, you know, I already knew the culture I wanted to create. I'd been through multiple other cultures, one that wasn't so good and one that I wouldn't say was bad, but it wasn't really geared towards building a solid team in my eyes. So I knew that that, no, I wouldn't bring anybody in the company that didn't have that same mindset or personality. Mm. That was number one. And then number two was I didn't want to start down here like a guy with a welding welder in his garage doing small work. Um, not that there's anything wrong with that. There's some biggest companies that I know that are hundred million, $200 million companies that started that way. But, you know, I wasn't 20 anymore and I wasn't, you know, I didn't want to take 25 years to build a company. So I told, you know, even when I talked to my wife beforehand, I said, I'm going after the guys I work for. I'm going after the hundred million, $200 million. I'm not going to stay down here. And that's going to require, support. So I went out to a group of friends and family and I said, listen, this is my plan. Created a a pitch and a full business plan with a five-year outlook. Um, I had a target of about 150,000 I wanted to raise and we had our own money. And I knew the business I was getting into is, is, uh, you know, expensive. That's one of the barriers for getting a lot of people to that level, right? If I was going to go after one, two, $3 million projects, I had to have machinery. I had to have a facility big enough. I had to have, you know, payroll that was going to be, you know, potentially six figures uh, a month. So I knew ahead of time because I knew the work business so well that, you know, this wasn't going to be a cheap endeavor. So I went out, did the pitch. I'd say, you know, 90% of the people invested in the company. I knew that I wanted to own a large majority and anybody investing would have to be a silent partner. They all agreed to that. Um, and then I, I raised probably about 125, 130,000 pretty quick. Then we invested our own money. Uh, and then I went to the bank for an SBA with my business plan and pretty much got the SBA loan with the investment. And then what I put in, um, you know, we, we started the company in April. I say started DL metal line been since 2015, but really, you know, what we're doing now is a big major expansion almost like starting a whole new company um in 20 uh 2020 so april 2020 we started um literally a month into the pandemic too that 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 takes a big big faith right like (laughs) like that is wow amazing yeah it was you know it it worked for us too though dave because when you think about it companies that were already running before that period you got overhead already you've got employees you've got rent you have to pay those bills or you're going to lose people or you're going to lose, you know, product. You're going to, so for me, it was honestly, it was almost kind of a blessing that we had that point to start with because everybody stopped. Right. And we're just, so we had that time to kind of build, we had to get a shop. Our first employee, I already, you know, had talked to somebody who was leaving another company that I knew very well to become my uh, pretty much operations director. So between me, my wife, and him, we had that four months to kind of get everything ready, up, and running to then start hiring and producing work. So from April to pretty much August, September, that was our setup time and my sales period. Like I had to start selling work immediately because when you sell work, detailing was no problem because I already, you know, DL Metazine was a detailing and engineering company, right? So. So that we kind of handled immediately. So those first four to five months I knew was going to be, was already covered, detailing and engineering. And then it gave us time to create the whole company from scratch. HR books, safety books, find a shop, operating procedures from A to Z. Um, we, all, we did all of that in that four to five month period. Wow. And then, then the work hit. 
So by October of 2020, we already had projects. So we produced almost 600,000 worth of work in that first year. Wow. Um, with pretty much just producing for six months. That's impressive. Wow. And we had, we had a big barrier there too, which I didn't tell yeah. you. Because yeah. we rented a shop in Montgomeryville, Pennsylvania. And uh, so we're, you know, we go through this four month period, the work's about to hit. We're probably two weeks away from drawings hitting the shop where we have to start manufacturing. Right. And uh, we're moving in our equipment and the township comes and slaps a sign on the door that we can't move in. Because when I went to get my certificate of occupancy, the landlord never got a permit because he was so hard to get the townships when everything shut down. So he just decided to demise the building without permits. So, so we're literally two weeks away from having to start building stuff. And my 8,000 square foot shop just got shut down and I haven't even started work yet. <laughs> so, so, I mean, this is stuff that you're going to run into, right? That's right. So I, you know, I called my operations director. I said, everything, I don't care what you're doing. Everything stops. We're going to go find a place right now. So we spent, you know, two straight days looking everywhere for a shop. Mm. Um, and we found a small shop, but it couldn't fit the office like the original one we had. Yeah. So we had to split the office in the shop. So I went, I was going to lease a four or 5,000 square foot space near Philadelphia, yeah. which was closer to him. And then out near me in Lehigh Valley, I, was, I rented an office, small 800 square foot office, yeah. where I would essentially have the headquarters of, you know, PMs and stuff like that. So... So that's how the company first got split up. So right now we actually, not everything is in one building. Mm -hmm. um, and then the day I was going to go sign the lease for the 4,000 square foot space, I got a phone call from another place we really liked. It was 15,000 square feet. Mm -hmm. And I was an hour away from going to sign the 4,000 square foot lease. That place came back on the market. We rushed over there. It was an amazing place. It needed a lot of work, but the lease amount was amazing. So I didn't mind investing the money in fixing the place up, knowing that overall, I was still paying a great lease amount over the period of time. Yeah. So we got lucked out and we got the place in Philadelphia, um, moved in within two or three days and started producing work less than a month later. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing, Dave. So just for listeners, because I know, but I want listeners to know, and I know we'll, 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 we'll tackle this more specifically at the end even as well but what does dl metal design do uh to i know there's a couple of different elements that you guys handle and but but yeah from yeah so so dl metal design is what you would call a subcontractor in commercial work so you have obviously the owner then you have a design team which is the architect and the uh could be multiple architects and multiple engineers that create the design team. Uh, the layer below them is what you would call either a CM construction manager, or it goes directly to a general contractor. Those are essentially the main contractors. I mean, there's more to it too, because there's also prime contractors, but we won't go into those details, but, <laughs> but essentially those GCs, general contractors or construction managers, they then go out and find a bunch of subcontractors to do the work. So we're one of those kind of legs of a subcontractor that creates a job. So DL Metal Design does steel work. Now there's structural steel work, which a lot of people know, you see a big skeleton of a building going up. That's not what we do. We do what we call miscellaneous and ornamental metals. So those guys that put up those large buildings, they put them up and they want to get out of there. But there's a ton of steel work that comes after the fact. There's a, you know, supports in the wall for things that are very heavy. There's supports in the ceiling that might be supporting, I don't know, if you're at a hospital and you see those big booms hanging from the ceiling, there's a bunch of steel supporting that in the ceiling, right? Right. Um, so if you're at a big convention center, right, Dave, and you see those humongous partitions that are rolling to split one room into two, there's a ton of steel in the ceiling that supports that. So all that type of stuff happens later down the road. So we do that type of work. Then there's the next layer of, of uh, metals, which is ornamental metal. Then that's like curved stainless staircase with glass railings you might see. Mm -hmm. um, you might see a bunch of railings on balconies or exterior, right? We just finished a project for a casino that had these cool rusting art panels for uh, Wind Creek Casino. 
So <clears throat> there's just a ton of metal work that happens outside of just the building. Uh, staircases of prop stairs and rails are kind of our forte. But because we're in the ornamental world, we're also very good at art type stuff. And we're also good at things that are kind of one-offs. Like, you know, we did a, uh, there's a Perlman theater in, in Manhattan. Um, and that they had these custom tube doors that had to open if there was a fire ever. And there was like hundreds of them, you know? So we had to design this kind of like structure system that works off of these automated hinges and we had to make it all work, you know, and show them it could work in the shop. And then we built them, you know, that we'll probably never build that again, but you know, but that's the kind of stuff that we do and we do it from beginning to end. So we draw it, engineer it, make sure it's going to work. And then we go and we build it and then we install it. So, yeah. And and what's interesting, correct me if I'm wrong, Dave, but you personally know how to design and do the actual work. Yes. Like, which is, which is rare, right? Because I go back to your gift of, you know, being good with people. And so a lot of times, right, you'll see this like, like a, like example, like a Mark Zuckerberg, right? He was the coder. He knew how to code and program, but he's also a leader. And that's rare. That's really hard to be good at a le- as a leader, but also be good in the actual work that you do. Yeah. So, I mean, I started in a shop when I was, you know, kind of at college breaks. I would, uh, you know, my brother was a welder. He saw me going to work at, you know, as a waiter at Denny's or going to work at the Gap on my breaks. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, you make more money if you come in here and learn, you know, a little bit of the trade. So, now, honestly, that's where the steel, whole steel thing started. Um, so when he brought me there, I actually ran a machine that would punch holes and beams and stuff. And then I became a welder. Now, if I went and welded now, my mechanics would be like, he is no welder. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I was good back then, but I'm probably very rusty now, but, but that gave me a good feel for what it was like and what was expected at that level. Mm. Um, so yeah, so that's how it all started. Right. And, and then I worked my way through the company to eventually become a project manager at a pretty young age. So, um, you know, I know all aspects of this business because I've lived them. Wow. And I think that's what makes you a great leader because you can relate to anybody in any position and know what's expected, but also have compassion and understanding uh, for what it takes. And and I think that's what also, it's like, it's like a beautifully woven story because it's what allows you to create a good culture. If you didn't understand the, the people welding and the project managers and the executives, uh, you wouldn't be as a great leader, I believe, right? You'd be, you're a better leader because you know. I would, I would say yes in mm-hmm. certain ways. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I don't think that – I guess what I'm saying is I don't think you need to work in the plant to feel mm-hmm. respect for the people working in the plant, right? That's good. So, so I think that, you know, it's more of being under an understanding that – Take, for instance, we just had a, so one thing I definitely always felt was everybody to me in our company is as important as every other person, right? Mm -hmm. Now, there's different levels of education and experience that create difference in salaries and pay. But at the same time, no one person in this company, at least at this size, if you want to scale, you can't do it by yourself. And everybody is just as important as every level. So we just did a, you know, I did a full company retreat. I closed my shop, my manufacturing, I closed my offices and, you know, we put all of our phones down. We put all of our auto response on our emails that we were away for the day for a company development. Yeah. And, you know, from the mechanic, from the guy who, you know, supports the shop with, <clears throat> you know, just cutting things and loading things, we're all in a room together. And I made it very clear. I said, you know, this is where we want to go as a company. When I say as a company, it's not just the people that manage you. And it's not just the people that are working on the design drawings. It's not just the people working in the shop. It's everybody. And I think as a leader, whether you've worked those jobs or not, if you don't have a respect for that, um, you know, it's, it's culturally becomes an issue. So that's why I wanted to make sure that everybody in that room understood. And I said it verbally to each, you know, to the whole group is that, you know, I can't sell things if you guys can't make it. You guys got nothing to make if we don't sell it. And if we don't draw it and draw it right, we're going to lose money. We're going to be closed and nobody's going to have a job. Right. So I made it very clear that that respect has to happen. I don't care what your pay is or what your education is. If we're going to move together as a group, as a team, 
everybody's just important as the other. We have a hole here. doesn't matter how big that hole is. It's going to cost us money. And that means eventually that could become a cancer that creates, you know, the end of this company. So every person in this room is as important as the other person, including, you know, me comparative to somebody else. So I think as a leader, you have to have that respect, whether you've done it or not for everybody in the company, um, which, you know, I've been in companies where that has not happened. Mm, wow. Dave, this is remarkable. So, so take us through now, like you, you're, you're thriving in the pandemic and, and now you're scaling up this business. Talk to us about the scale. You, you just talked about it. Like you can't scale can't happen with by yourself. You need team, you need respect, you need these things. So, so for entrepreneurs listening out here, they're hearing your story, seeing how you took your experience working for others and then parlaying it into DL metal design and building this thing and preparing and all the things that you've done to literally prepared you to, to build this company up. Now take us through the face. Cause this is, this is not, this is not the easy part of, of a business. I mean, there's not a lot of easy parts about building a business, but, but scaling is, is, is not easy. So how, how did you guys scale from, from that from the beginning of the pandemic to where you are today? So scaling is not easy and it's scary, right? <clears throat> but you have to commit to do to it. You have to commit to it. Right. So, I knew that it wasn't, so we, we live in an industry at DL Metal Design where everything is a lagging pay. So not only is scaling costs money, but now we're doing work that we don't get paid for for 60 or 90 days. So, so one of the first things I do, I knew was that, you know, cash flow had to be going smooth for me to really start pushing what we sell and how big we get. So from day one, it was important for me to know who my clients were, how quick they paid, who I was going to stick to and who I wasn't. So in our business, there's kind of like layers of contractors, right? There's ones that do smaller work. There's ones that do larger work. And then once you get into the scale of like multi, multi-million dollar jobs, you're kind of playing in an area where it's almost like the difference between a local bank and going to Bank of America, right? You go to a local bank, they're like, okay, Dave, I can tell you now what you can do. I have faith in what you can do. You showed me the numbers and you showed me the experience. I'm going to take a chance on you and I'm going to lend you some money. So in our business, it's very similar. That's what the smaller contractors did to DL when we first started. The larger contractors like going to Bank of America, right? Fill this paper out. There's some guy over in Wisconsin who's going to look at it. And if you don't check all the boxes, sorry, it's not going to work for us. <clears throat> so I knew that... I needed to kind of court these clients down here first to get myself moving. And then eventually we'd have the financials and the ability to get bigger jobs with the larger firms, because now just on paper, we look good enough to work for them. Right. So, so that was important to me was first building that client base of people that I knew were going to pay me and pay me on time. And we did that <clears throat> at the same time. I knew I needed a core group. I needed a core group of people because I, you can only wear every hat for so long, right? Eventually you, something starts to fail because you don't have enough time to do everything perfect, right? So I knew that was going to happen and I knew we had to hire ahead. So no matter what we did, we had to be ahead of the, the, the scale. So, so we hired ahead and tried to fill that core team. And a core team that I knew in any single department, that person could do every job in that department. So... If we couldn't hire a mechanic, the general the general uh, manager for the shop had to fabricate. I mean, that's, you know, he had to be able to fabricate and know it that well. Um, so that was the main two things, core group and good clients. That's what we focused on. Once I felt comfortable we had that, then I pushed it to the next level, right? So cash flow is starting to do fine. It's coming in good. We have some good clients that we're working with. Our core group, we're hiring kind of ahead. You know, paint the shop walls, get it organized and ready, because when the work does come, you're not going to have time to do any of that. So we hired a head and started doing that, got good mechanics in the shop um, and then started pushing that sales. Now, you know, we'd see our cash go like this every month, you know, but the key was little by little, you know, payroll, 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 materials get paid, payroll, 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 materials get paid. But then we started kind of building on that. And so we had, you know, a multi-month cushion. Um, and then I was also not naive that I was going to have to go out and get financing. 
if we started to grow too big, because that's really the killer for everybody, right? You could scale and be really good at what you do, but if you can't pay your bills, you're going under. Um, so before we got to that point, I already started putting people and institutions in place that I could work, count on to get additional uh, capital if we needed. So, you know, there was one private investor that, you know, gave us a two-year loan that we, you know, just paid off this year, <clears throat> which was very nice. But, you know, um, so that helped us through that process as well. Mm-hmm. Knowing where to get that financing was important. Uh, relationships I made in 10KSP, like, you know, even financial relationships I made. Right. Um, so going out there and getting ahead of that curve before it became an issue. Um, so that was important too for scaling. But I mean, if you know and you're confident in what you do and you put out quality work, getting bigger is not hard. Mm-hmm. It's being able to pay the bills and controlling everything that happens with that. And like I said, you can't do that alone. Focus on your team first. Elevate your team, educate your team, make sure that they got your back. No matter what happens at any level, they can step in. If I needed to, I'd go to the shop on a Saturday, mm-hmm. you know? <clears throat> so, you know, in year one or two, if I had to, I, I'll, I'll show, I'll go on a Saturday and work there if I have to. Um, you have to be committed to do anything, but yeah, it's important to build that team. And I know it's not hard. I mean, it's hard currently in this atmosphere, you know, trying to find the right people, but when you do, treat them well, elevate them, give them knowledge, find what motivates them, and and you know make it worth their while. Wow, that's remarkable advice. There's so many gems that you dropped there, Dave. And I know we didn't really get to to dive into the other aspects, but um, because you are a serial entrepreneur as well, so you yeah. you you've you've not only built successfully DL Metal, you have some other companies. Uh, if you want to just briefly touch on those and then I'll ask you my final question for you, but okay. you know, because I, I think once you get the formula right of business, business is business is business. So, yes. yeah. So, um, you know, once DL was doing very, very well and we grew and we scaled quickly and I felt we had the core team, it started, I started focusing on giving myself more bandwidth to start other companies. So we have, uh, we have a home remodeling company that we started a uh, trust building company. Um, mainly works in the Lehigh Valley in Pennsylvania. Um, that actually opened up this year and we've been doing really good. I mean, I think in the first six months, we'll probably sell, you know, half a million dollars worth of work. Um, then we have a, a company called Streamline Stairs that we're working on currently uh, with a partner that I met from 10KSP. <laughs> so uh, <clears throat> hopefully that'll roll out sometime in the next, you know, six months or so. We're working on design stages for that. And I opened up a company in the Philippines. Uh, So, you know, I have three employees over there now building into potentially two more, just incorporating the company now and and getting that started. Um, That is going to be a support for DL and just people in the construction industry. Uh, I saw a very good service niche that we could kind of fill. So we started that process there too. Um, And then I've been in real estate, so I probably flipped you know, eight to 10 houses owned multiple rental homes that we've, you know, whether it was vacation homes or actual rental homes that we've owned over the years. Um, so I have a knowledge kind of in the real estate side as well, real estate investing. Beautiful. Yeah. Wonderful day. And on top of all that, you find time to coach and, and coach your children. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah. Um, so Dave, I, I appreciate your time. Yep. Um, two last questions. One, you know, how can people get plugged in to say, hey, Dave, one, I would love to uh, work with your company. Maybe we maybe we have somebody listening that that needs the metal work that you guys do or needs the contracting. And two, hey, Dave, I was inspired by your story. I, I, I would love to get maybe mentored by you, coached yeah. by you, you know, as an entrepreneur. How, how can people get plugged in with you? So uh, company wise, you know, DL Metal Design is mainly a, you know, commercial construction company uh so we don't do any like residential small jobs but anybody that wanted to you know touch base with us that way whether it's a developer or it's a real estate investor who's building something big and needs support on that end um you know you can go to www.dlmetaldesign.com we have a ton of contact and a ton ton of uh, portfolio information on there uh so that would i say be the first step um then we have obviously have TBC, which is trust building company, mainly Lehigh County um, area going into like Bucks County and uh, a little further south. But 
that company is essentially trustbuildingco.com. Uh, that's how you can get a hold of that company. Um, and then obviously you're, you're aware I'm going to be, you know, hopefully finishing a book here in about four to six months that I'll put out on the market. Uh, very, you know, I've mentored a few business owners over the years. Um, it's nice to see the progression and success that they've built. Uh, and I want to make that a large part of, you know, essentially my life moving forward. So, um, you know, I do have David Lopez inspires.com. Uh, it's a website that is in the works and hopefully be out, you know, sometime in that same time realm of the book. Uh, so people can, you know, look, go to that website or reach out to me through either one of those companies. Um, and, uh, you know, that is something that I want to kind of help people with because, uh, it's important realistically, if you've got that formula and you plug it in properly and put in the work, right. You know, uh, I always like to say there was uh, essentially that one quote that said, you know, opportunities miss people all the time because it looks like overalls and work, right? That's what it takes. So, um, but yes, I'd love to take what I've learned over the years, failures and successes and uh, pass those on to as many people as I can with, you know, coaching and mentorship moving forward. Love it. Love it, Dave. And, and the final question I have, well, you weren't prepped on this. <laughs> so we we, we kind of just walked through, right? We went through the discovery, the discovering that you um, are good with, people and good at leading people and then the development phase all the work that you put in behind the scenes to develop yourself and um, learn your craft master the steel space uh, learn how to lead people learn how to run operations as, as you were the COO and other executive positions and then we got so I kind of took you through our process and then we went through the the, the, the last D uh, so discover develop and then distribute the marketing right how do you build this business how do you scale this business we talked about all of those elements. So with that said, Dave, the final question I have for you is what is the difference between one's gift and one's purpose? One's gift and one's purpose. I mean, I think, you know, everybody has a gift they have to offer, period, right? Um, to me, a gift is something, you know, we've been, you know, I haven't mentioned it, but, you know, I've been very blessed in this whole process as well. You know, um, I'm a blessed person and everyone in my eyes, God gives all of us gifts. You know, it's a matter of you working and putting effort into what he's given you to turn it into something that's important. Um, you know, a gift is something that I think you have and you can cultivate and you can become better at. Now, you know, a purpose to me is, you know, that is something different. You know, it's essentially using your gift for that important thing in life or that important thing that you feel, you know, God has essentially given you that direction to make, make a change or make a difference in somebody's life or in the world period. Um, you know, you know, my purpose driven life, you ever read that book? I love that book. <laughs> yes. You know, so, you know, my gift is not necessarily why I do things. It's the purpose is why I do things. Um, whether it's, you know, family, friends, uh, gifting others, what, you know, has helped me grow in life. And I didn't come from a lot. My parents came from nothing. Um, but you know, we've built something that, you know, my purpose is hopefully going to continue as a legacy well beyond me into my children and other generations and other people that I touch. So yeah, that's what I think the difference is. That's beautiful, Dave. Thank you so much for blessing the people today. I enjoy thoroughly enjoyed our convo. We'll have to definitely do a part two when the book comes out and uh yeah thank you dave all righty thanks dave uh, uh, i searched all over the world struggling to find it dear listener i would like to thank you so much for listening to how i discovered my gift with yours truly david d simons as a token of my appreciation i would love to give to you my most important piece of work to date and it's called the purpose gift tape it's a motivational mixtape geared towards helping you to identify your gifts, which ultimately lead to you discovering your purpose. This is a six-track album I poured my heart and soul into. It includes beautiful beats and amazing spoken word over it. And I'd love to give that to you as a free gift, as a token of my appreciation for being a part of the community. So to get your copy, all you need to do is go to podcast.com daviddsimons.com that's podcast dot 
David, the middle initial D, Simons, S-I-M-O-N-S dot com and get yours today. Thank you for being a listener. I'll catch you on the next episode. How I Discover My Gift with David D. Simons is proud to be of the amazing and illustrious Alive Podcast Network.